please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. No surprise. And when you find that, please stand with me to read God's Word. We're going to read verses 25 through 34, though we're going to be looking today at verses 31 through 34 specifically. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. These are the words of Jesus. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Lord God, we we are here today anxious and worried about so many things once again. It would be great to take the magic pill and have it all gone, but we, we know, Lord, that while we are here in this body, on this earth, we will continue to battle fear and anxiety and worry. But Lord, we come to you today and we know that you have been faithful over and over and over again in our lives and in this church and in our families. And so Lord, we come to you in faith. We come to you, Lord, asking that you would once again show yourself to be faithful, Lord, that as you have met our needs in the past, you will meet our needs in the present. For everything, for the smallest worry to the greatest concern. And Lord, we will give you the honor, we will give you the glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we talked about focusing on uh, trusting God with everything. As we looked at part one of worry and anxiety, a question of trust. In Matthew 6, 25 through 34. And we saw that trust is the God-ordained loss or even lack of control. That we are to roll everything to Him, to commit over to Him, to entrust to Him what we cannot and should not try to control. That God knows everything. He can do anything. And he is the one we look to to make sense out of life. Uh, This passage highlights our common problem that we all face 
According to verse 31 here, do not be anxious. It's also in verse 25 and 27 and 28 and 34. But the problem is that we are worriers. We are anxiety driven at times. That we get anxious over things. Uh, there, there are lists, and, and I'll share with you one, the, the top five worries of teens back when I was a senior in high school, 1980. Uh, we worried about having one continuous eyebrow. No one wants to have a unibrow. We worried that we would have body odor and our friends would notice. The guys, we worried that we couldn't grow a mustache. The ladies, they worried that they would grow a mustache. <laughs> Everybody's got a mustache, by the way. Just relax. Some are just more obvious. Um, everybody worried that the lock on the bathroom door wouldn't work and, you know, somebody would walk in. Be careful in those new bathrooms in, in Fellowship Hall. Make sure you lock the door. But worries for teens in 2009 are different. See, uh, you're anxious about whether you're going to have the wrong brand of clothes. Or whether you'd be forced to decide between taking drugs or not. Or that you won't achieve enough in life. Or that you would have to stand up to a bully. Or that you won't meet the too high expectations of others. Actually, seriously, we had the same fears back in 1980. They just looked different. I had a fro. And so, um, but we all degrill, uh, deal with, to one degree or another... With worry and anxiety, which if you boil it down, is really this, fear based on unbelief. Fear stemming from not believing that God will really take care of you. In verse 30 of this passage, Jesus compassionately named his followers, uh, Oh, you of little faith, little faiths, because worry doesn't fit with faith. It doesn't do us any good. It can actually harm us uh, greatly. Chronic worry and emotional stress uh, can trigger a a whole bunch of health problems. About 2.4 million Americans uh, from the ages of 18 through 54 have a panic disorder every year. Some of you are dealing with that. And these turn into other anxieties and fears and phobias. Some almost paralyzing. And it starts in the mind. We can't let our minds go astray to falsehood. We must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Being set free by the truth. See, God wants us to learn the lesson that all true disciples learn. That a wrong view of God leads to anxiety. That wrong thinking about God leads to worry. And a right view of God, an accurate view of God, leads to confident trust. That right thinking about God leads to right actions. And right actions in turn lead to right relationships. Which in turn encourage us to deeper trust in God. That's why you want people around you who are like-minded. Not everyone around you, but your greatest friends, your greatest confidants, need to be people who share a common worldview. Jesus wants to rescue us. In this passage, I see compassionate 
love that wants to rescue those that are caught in the web of anxiety and worry and even panic. God wants us to trust Him. He wants us to choose contentment over anxiety. See, life is full of choices that we make every day. And uh, I mentioned this last week, but this passage of Scripture is often read alone by itself outside of the context, context with which it resides. And here's what is missed in this passage. Look with me at verse 25. Here's what's missed. Therefore I tell you. Therefore I tell you, Jesus says. See, Jesus calls us to think before we act. He invites us to weigh the options. He wants us to consider the alternatives that are before us. He says, you want to collect treasure? Well, which kind lasts longer? Treasures on earth or treasure in heaven? You want to be free to serve God? What kind of vision will enable that? Uh, Clear vision or cloudy vision? A good eye or an evil eye? You want to serve the best master, Jesus asks? Well, which is more worthy of your devotion? God or possessions? What this passage that we've been looking at since last week is saying to us is this. If you choose, in context, if you choose heavenly treasure, if you choose light rather than darkness, if you choose to follow God, then this is how you are to live. So we'll read on. Jesus wants us to, to choose well. So he says, do not be anxious about your life. See, the pull of materialism dulls the senses. It dulls the senses. It spoils the appetite for spiritual things. See, it's like Jesus is putting the false and the true right up next to each other. They're hold, he's holding them up for us all to see. And he's inviting us to compare the two side by side. To find out for ourselves which is better. To find out for ourselves which one will work. And I'll tell you, more than ever now, and we all know this, with, with, the, with the hard economic times in which we live, it, it, coupled with exploding population in the world, Christians are re-evaluating more than ever the out-of-balance consumption, especially in America, in light of the times, but more importantly, in light of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. In light of what Jesus has to say. And basically, what we, what we learn from this passage of Scripture today is that God, by grace, brings contentment to all who trust in Him. God, in His grace, gives contentment and peace to all who trust in Him. Now, by way of contrast, if you look at verse 32, Jesus points out the, the world's ambition, that is the really ignorant and misguided ambition. He says in verse 32, uh, the Gentiles seek after all these things. In verse 31, he said, don't be anxious about all the things you're going to eat and all the things you're going to wear and what you're going to drink. Don't be anxious about the necessities of life. And in verse 32, he says, 
The Gentiles eagerly seek those things. Literally, eagerly seek means they are anxious about those things. Things that perish like food and drink and clothing. The Greek word for Gentiles, by the way, is ta ethnes. It means the nations. Now, that usually points to non-Jews, Gentiles. Um, But here it means, as Michael Wilkins put it, those who operate outside of God's values. The Gentiles, the world, basically unbelievers. Those who operate outside of God's values. Jesus is speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount to those who would follow him. But he is saying that those who don't trust God, those who don't agree with God, they go after material things full on uh, with, with gusto. And they're left to fend for themselves. Their, their misguided ambition leads to anxious thoughts about the necessities of life. They do not have a father in heaven. So, as Bonhoeffer wrote, they try to get for themselves what they do not expect from God. Jesus says that this is what, this is what the world seeks after. But you've got a heavenly Father who knows what you need. The world's ambition is out of balance. And those who follow Jesus know better, but those who don't follow Christ seek as their first priority their own security. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown said this, Knowing nothing definitely beyond this present life to kindle their aspirations and engage their supreme attention, the heathen naturally pursue present objects as their chief, their only good. And then they say, To what an elevation above these does Jesus here lift his disciples? See, we live in a world where people want a manageable God. One that they can control. One of their own making. And many seek and serve then things that become their God and end up controlling them. Followers of Christ know better. We know better. That material things are not worthy of our first focus. Because God knows what we need. What it says in verse 32. God knows what you need. But if we're honest, sometimes we cave to the temptation uh, to imitate those who operate outside of God's values. Matthew chapter 6, verses 3, 33 and 34 are Jesus' great summary statement here. It's showing what should be the church's holy and really humble ambition. The true church of Jesus Christ, those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, have a different motivation. They have a different ambition. They have a different master. And what God calls us to do, by the way, He enables us to do by the power of His Holy Spirit. We are not left to our own devices. Look with me at verse 33. But seek first... Jesus says, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, the same things that the nations go after, the same things that those who don't 
fall in line with God's values go after. He says those very same things that they are so wrapped up in, they're so anxious about, and they're so fixated on, these will be provided for you. They'll be provided by God. The pursuit, the pursuit of Christ's followers is this. Seek first. Seek first. Literally, seek as of first importance. Seek as of first priority. God's kingdom, first of all. God's kingdom. Two different things here. God's kingdom and God's righteousness. The idea behind God's kingdom, the Greek word basileia, it signifies sovereignty, royalty, power, reign. It's basically God's rule now and his future reign. Present and future. Christ's reign now in the hearts of those he has saved by grace through faith. And in the future, Christ's reign, return and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. So it's Christ's reign in your life and in the world. Now, God's specific rule over his people starts in your life when you humble yourself, when you repent of your sin, when you believe, when you yield to God, and you are born again. Seek first his kingdom, them, for those who are born again, means to want most the spread of and the increase of Christ's rule. Now that specific reign of God, God uh, uh, meant when we say God's kingdom, exists in the present only where Christ is acknowledged as Lord. It first starts in your own life, in your home, in your marriage, in your family, in your household. How you take care of business dealings, it is observed. How your professional life is lived. How your bank account is handled. How your tax returns are prepared. How you live. What kind of lifestyle you live. What kind of citizen you are. And and God's kingdom, as we are acknowledging Christ as Lord, is acknowledged, has, has to do with your relationships with other people. Your perspective towards those who don't know Christ. Your perspective towards unbelievers. Whether or not you accept your evangelistic responsibility towards those who do not know Jesus, be they your friends, relatives, neighbors, co-workers. It also means having global concern. Not just living here and now and not thinking about the rest of the world, but having a global concern. And why would we care if the gospel is spread? As we are seeking God's kingdom? Christ's rule and reign, the increase and growth of Christ's rule and reign. Why would we care? 
the gospel is spread for the glory of God to add to the worship that we desire God's name to be praised and Christ to be honored by more and more people just as we have experienced God's grace, just as we have experienced God's love, just as we have experienced God's forgiveness, we want others to experience that same, those same things. And we await Christ's return. That's part of seeking first the kingdom of God. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We read some words about what will be. We hear of Jesus. How in verse 9 of Philippians 2, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. There is no name greater. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know that that is true. But we are praying that this side of eternity, people will bow their knees and people will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord before it is too late for them. Before it is too late and they are bowing their knees and confessing Christ as Lord from a Christless eternity in a real place called hell. We pray and we work and we strive in a godly way for others to know Jesus as we, by God's grace, have come to know him. So we're to seek first God's kingdom, his rule in our life and his rule in the world and his future reign. Now, the other thing we're to seek, different than God's kingdom, by the way, is God's righteousness. God's righteousness, which basically means right actions based on right standing with God and then seeking what is right for all people. It is not just right standing with God. It is... It is based upon right standing with God. It leads to right actions and to what is right for all people. See, if you are a Christian, you desire very deeply by the grace of God to be a counterculture for God's glory and others' good. And while you do not always do this, you are aware of and focusing on future realities and you are enabled to do that because christ lives in you and god has changed your perspective god has renewed your mind and continues to do so and you are trusting god for the future while being a light to the world in the present and it is for christ's righteousness that we hunger and thirst Matthew 5, 6. It is for God's righteousness that we suffer. Matthew 5, 12. It is for God's righteousness, full conformity to his moral, 
law going further than the scribes and the Pharisees because it is of, from God, not from ourselves, for which we, we live, Matthew 5.20. Really, this verse in verse 33 points back to Matthew 5.20, where Jesus said, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Not going to happen. Unless you have the righteousness of Christ that succeeds all others. So our good works in life, what could be called righteousness, are not to earn anything, but only to, o- to obey our king. They're only to obey Jesus. And so what happens is, as we seek first God's kingdom, and we seek his righteousness, we grow, a, God grows in us a deep love for the poor in spirit who have yet to bow the knee and confess that Christ is Lord. But he also grows in us a deep love for the poor of this world. For those who lack their daily necessities. For those who are so wrapped up in that pursuit that they can't see clearly to see the light of the gospel. It's the glory of God seen in the face of Christ. For example, take, take world hunger. Hunger around the world is not a case of God not providing enough food. It is a case of people not sharing enough of what they have. That God has given ample resources to meet the needs of every human being living on the face of this planet. But people and and Americans are often the biggest culprits. Just look what's in the dumpsters outside most restaurants and most supermarkets. Good food that gets thrown away. People hoard and waste and do not share. God is good and God provides. As we focus on God's kingdom, Christ's rule in our hearts and and hoping for him to rule in others in the world, and looking forward to Christ's return, as we seek God's righteousness, right in right actions that are based upon right standing with God through faith in Christ, and then seeking what is right for all people, as we do that, as recipients of God's grace do that, we are identified by a character and good works, identifiable. Matthew 5, 16. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, Christian righteousness is not as man has warped it. It is not thinking we are better than others. It is not being prideful. It is nothing of the sort. It has nothing to do with that. It is not a teaching of salvation by works. The first beatitude made it very clear that the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom. Those who see themselves as bankrupt, having nothing, not even righteousness. As Paul said, he did not come with the righteousness of his own, derived from the law, but what is through faith in Christ for all who believe. 
that Christian righteousness goes much deeper. It is of the heart. It is through God's Spirit indwelling His people. The new birth brings it. You must be born again to have it. And Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter one. Verse twenty-eight. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him. You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. So it is written, those who boast must boast in the Lord. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. Christ is our righteousness. To have it, you must be born again. And so, we have a pursuit that is clear. God makes it clear. Jesus makes it clear. And there is a promise attached to it. It's still in verse 33. That when you seek of first importance what is most important to God, God will provide what you need. God will provide what you need. Seek as your first priority God's kingdom. Acknowledge his authority. Acknowledge his right to rule in your life. And acknowledge his, seek his righteousness, living in ways that please him, and he will provide what you need. That won't always be what you want. You want to boil this down? It's like this. You worry about what, what is your stuff. Let God worry about his stuff. You focus on what God wants you to focus on. Let God worry about what he focuses on. The righteous will not go hungry. The righteous will never be forsaken. It's a promise from God. And for some people, though, anxiety over daily necessities is a daily struggle. Some of you are in that realm, and you don't know where your next meal is coming from. You don't know how you will pay the bills. You don't know how you'll live beyond today. But for most, we take for granted God's provision because it's always there. So instead of seeking after it, we complain about what we already have. We complain, I don't like that kind of food. Well, I have nothing to wear. Really. That tastes terrible. Don't want to eat that. Oh, you don't have my brand of soft drink? Take this away. I've actually heard people do that in restaurants. You don't have my brand of soft drink. Ruin my day. See, when Jesus says, do not be anxious for your life, he was talking about those who were doing or about to do without of daily necessities. He is not talking about luxuries. We think that because we don't have luxuries, God somehow is not meeting our needs. 
We've got it all twisted. And here's what Jesus is saying to us. You are either going to be concerned most for feeding, clothing, comforting, entertaining, and preserving your body, or you're going to be most concerned with God first, and because of that, want to feed, clothe, and comfort others for Christ's sake. Jesus made us, Jesus cares for us, and he doesn't say that earthly things aren't important. He taught us to pray for our daily needs. But if we become fixated on material comfort, we are choosing another master. If that is our first concern, that is our master. Unworthy of the bulk of our attention, Jesus says. And yes, we should plan ahead for the future. And yes, we should take sensible steps for our security and that of our households. But we are not to be distracted by it to the point of being consumed with self-destructive anxiety and obsessive worry. We live for something. We all live for something. We dedicate our life for that thing. It is our ambition. It is our desire. It is what drives us to achieve. It is what makes us tick. It is what motivates us. And in contrast with those who don't follow God, what they go after, strong desires are good if they are aimed in the right direction. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. What are we to seek? What are we to want? What are we to be anxious about in a good way? Because in this passage, being, seeking and being anxious for are parallel terms Depends on the object you are seeking. First Thessalonians four verses eleven and twelve. Make it your ambition. Make it your ambition, or aspire to lead a quiet life, to live a simple life, and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you. So that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says we have as our ambition whether at home or absent. Whether here on earth or in heaven with Jesus. To be pleasing to him. Whatever you want most. Jesus boils it down to one of two choices. Building your own security. Building your own comfort. Building your own fame, or the increase and victory of God's rule and righteousness in the world. My prayer is that you and I both will choose what is good today. Just today. I want to follow what these scriptures say. We're just going to be focused on this today. See, the point is this, and we see it in verse 34. What Jesus says, he says, therefore, based upon everything he said, he has just said, therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. See, common sense tells us that worry makes no sense. Worrying about tomorrow today is useless because you're wasting time today worrying. You're wasting today about something that may not happen. 
or you might not even be there for. When you do that, you don't deal with the tasks and the responsibilities right before you today. If you worry about something that never happens, you worried for nothing. If you worry about something that does end up happening, you worry twice. Worry doubles your trouble. See, God wants us to understand this verse in light of greater realities, in light of eternal truths. See, God wants us to understand, do not be anxious about tomorrow in light of the gospel. In light of the gospel, in light of who Jesus is, in light of what he has done, and in light of what Jesus is doing and will do. In light of the truth that all people apart from Christ are dead in sin and unable to move, bankrupt spiritually, poor in spirit. And that God in his mercy saves sinners, giving the free gift of salvation by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. And that as a result, he renews us, transforms us to live lives that please him in thought and word and actions. Rejecting our old way of life. Embracing our new life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it well. He said, instead of, if, instead of receiving God's gifts for today, we worry about tomorrow, we find ourselves helpless victims of infinite anxiety. Be not anxious for tomorrow. Either that is cruel mockery for the poor and wretched, the very people Jesus is talking to, humanly speaking, who really will starve if they do not make provision today, Either it is intolerable law which men will reject with indignation, or, he says, it is the unique proclamation of the gospel of the glorious liberty of the children of God who have a Father in heaven. A Father who has given His beloved Son. How shall not God with Him freely give us all things? If you have Christ, you have everything else thrown in. And everything we have come comes from God. And even when we lack what we need, we have all that we need because we have Jesus and God is with us. So we really don't lack. Let me give you ten reasons not to be anxious. Ten reasons not to be anxious according to Jesus. I gave you the first three last week. God is in control. God gives and sustains life. And he cares for his own. And there's more. In verse verse 26, the reason not to worry is because you are valuable to God. You matter to God. God cares for you. You are of more value than animals and plants that he has created. Verse 27, it doesn't accomplish anything. The reason not to worry is that worry doesn't accomplish anything good. It hinders you rather than helping you. It messes you up. What other reasons are there not to worry? Well, there's a reason not to worry because you are eternal. And if you are eternal, what you have here is not all there is. You have eternal rewards waiting. And when you boil it down, anxiety is fear based in unbelief. Not believing that God can take care of you. 
Another reason not to worry is that God knows what you need. And he knows better than us how to deal with those needs. And he can better than us provide for those needs. Another reason not to worry is God gives everything you need to do his will. Verse 33. All these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He gives you everything you need for life and godliness. And last reason, God will never give you more than you can handle. You say, well, I'm at the breaking point. You're stronger than you think. You're stronger in Christ than you think. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Verse 34 says, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Trouble. The Greek word kakia, it means evil, and trouble happens. Evil happens. See, freedom from anxiety is not come from a guarantee of no trouble, but a guarantee that trouble will be used by God in the lives of those he loves for good. That God has promised to work all things together for good to those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. Paul said in Ephesians 4 and verse 6, Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplications let your requests be made known unto God. In chapter 4 verse 19 he says, gives a promise, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's what God has promised for those who love him. He mirrors Jesus' words. He worries a waste of time. It's a waste of effort. So redeem the time and resolve to trust in God. Battle the unbelief of anxiety with the promises of God. That's what I have to do every day. Because to be perfectly honest with you, I probably struggle more than anyone else in this room with worry and anxiety. There are places I won't go. There are things I won't do out of fear and anxiety. And there have been pockets of victory, but I am still trusting God for victory based upon his promises. So I have got to tell myself the truth every day and not listen to lies. So if you're anxious about something new coming your way, battle unbelief with the promise, fear not, God says in Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right arm. If you are anxious about being weak, then battle that anxiety with the promise of God. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. If you are anxious about the future, battle that with the promise of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Psalm 32, 8. If you're anxious about getting old, and by the way, that's what's happening to all of us. If you're anxious about that, battle unbelief with the promise that even in your old age, God is God, and to gray hairs he will carry you. I have made you, I will bear you, I will carry you, and I will save you. Isaiah 46, verse 4. If you're anxious about dying, then battle that unbelief 
with the promise that none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. And if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or we die, we're the Lord's. We're secure. We're safe. For to this end, Christ died and rose again that he might be both the Lord of the dead and the living. Romans 14, 9 through 11. See, God wants to be trusted and he wants to be trusted one day at a time. Really one moment at a time. And he cares for you and he cares enough to have made the ultimate sacrifice for his glory and your eternal good. That God the Son trusted God the Father. That when Jesus went to the cross, substituting himself in our place, he cried out to the Father before he died, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Another way to say, I trust you. And when you trust God, you put your, your life in God's hands where it already is. Where it already is. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we do feel weak and we do feel anxious and we do, do wonder about the future. And we do wonder about what's coming next. We do even wonder about dying. We do even wonder about danger and about opponents and about whether we're going to be able to provide for our families and things like that. We worry about whether we're going to fail or not. We worry about whether we're going to fall away from you. Oh, Lord God, show us how secure we are in you. We pray in Jesus' name.